From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. On today's episode of End of Day Drinks, we're talking with Steve Grass, founder of Philadelphia's Quaker City Mercantile. While you may not be familiar with Steve's name, you are definitely familiar with the brands he's created. We chat about how Steve's early advertising work in the tobacco industry, which he calls the Marketing Marine Corps, provided him with the knowledge and experience to launch two of the world's most successful spirits brands, Hendrix Gin and Sailor Jerry Spice Drum. We also hear about his work rebranding some classic beer labels and his latest venture, the experimental Tamworth Distilling. Let's get to it. Hey, everybody. This is Tim McCurdy, staff writer at VinePair, and welcome to the EOD Drinks podcast. Joining us for today's episode, we have Steve Grass, founder of Quaker City Mercantile, and the brains behind some of the world's leading spirits brands. Welcome, Steve, and thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. And as always, I'm pleased to also be joined by members of VinePair's editorial team, including executive editor Joanna Sharino, senior editor Kat Wilinski, associate editor Katie Brown, and assistant editor Emma Cranston. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Hello. So, Steve, um, your track record shows that if I were launching a spirit brand tomorrow, you'd be the guy that I come to to take that brand viral and ultimately make it a huge hit. Your previous or ongoing hits include Sailor Jerry, one of the world's most successful and best-known rum brands, and Hendrix Gin, the label that pretty much ushered in what we might call you know, the genaissance and the huge popularity the category enjoys today. Um, but before we discuss those stories, I'd love for you to tell us how you got involved in the booze business and explain exactly what Quaker City Mercantile is. Uh, okay, sure. So, you know, we've been in business for 31 years. Uh, prior to 2008, we were called Gyro Advertising, or Gyro Worldwide. And um, we got our start in the uh, tobacco business. So probably for about 20 years, um, Gyro was the agency for Camel, Winston, Salem, Cool, American Spirit, and I mean, essentially, um, uh, we were pariahs in the advertising business. <laughs> so um, we we never entered advertising award shows and all that stuff. So we we used our excessive money to uh, create our own brands. And one of those brands we created was Sailor Jerry. We created Sailor Jerry as a T-shirt company, um, and. Uh, uh, one of the few clients we had besides R.J. Reynolds Tobacco was William Grant and & Sons. And we worked with them um, on Glenfiddich. And they came to us and said, we'd like you to create a gin and a rum for our portfolio. And uh, we came back to them with Hendrix for gin. And for rum, we came back with Sailor Jerry. Because I thought uh, creating a rum brand called Sailor Jerry would help sell more T-shirts. And... Um, it's interesting because we were smart enough to own the rights to Sailor Jerry, but Hendrix we did as a work for hire. Mm-hmm. So we've been with Grants now for, I think, nearly 28 years since wow. then. And, um, and we've, uh, um, 
been with them ever since. And and even after we sold Sailor Jerry in 2008 to Grants, we've remained with them, running, uh, doing all the marketing for both Sailor Jerry and Henry, mm-hmm. and and almost every other brand that, that Grants that Grants has. And that's so interesting as well because you know it's only what 2021, but I think that we're almost in an era where we completely have forgotten about that sort of the, the tobacco uh, yeah, advertising yeah. industry. But yeah. I imagine there were some crazy budgets and, and, and really kind of a lot of things that you learned during that experience and maybe kind of have influenced your later work. Is that the case or am I completely wide off the mark with that one? Well, we always say that uh, tobacco was like the marketing Marine Corps <laughs> because you couldn't do um, you, you couldn't do anything like you couldn't use any traditional marketing or advertising. You had to find ways to get your name out and do things in a very untraditional sense. Okay, so um, yeah, I think that that with the tobacco industry, it was also we always say too, it was like being a pirate, um, in, in the sense of like we'd have like crazy budgets for photo shoots and stuff, and they would never use half the stuff they would never use. So it was a, a very interesting time. One of the reasons we stopped working with R.J. Reynolds uh, was towards uh, the end, after we sold Sailor Jerry, tobacco had rightfully gone under FDA control. And all those crazy madmen days of, uh, you know, um, prior to FDA involvement, uh, mm-hmm. it just became a really, like, became basically working for a pharmaceutical company. So, so, so you one, caught the, the tail end of the, the Don Draper days of, of tobacco? Oh, ab- absolutely. It was, it was, uh, oh, what's the other word? Thank you for the movie. Thank you for smoking. It's very similar to that too. I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, uh, it was, uh, morally ambiguous, a- a- ambiguous, mm-hmm. uh, to, to work on this. But at the same time, we learned how to, uh, how to get brands or get the word out without any visible means of support by, by being in the tobacco industry. The other big teacher we had, the other, uh, client we had besides Grants and R.J. Reynolds was Puma sneakers, mm-hmm. and um, we took them from being a thirty million dollar nothing brand to uh, up to the point where they sold to Gucci for seven point eight billion. And they wow. were another brand where we could do anything we wanted, but they had no money. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so I, like the opposite of, of the tobacco of, industry. Yes, yes, but we had to find ways of like creating excitement and drama for Puma without having the, um, you know, the, the advantage of, that Nike had of, of television mm-hmm. or even outdoor. So, so um, sound- yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to say, so it sounds like, you know, you have both ends of the experience there, like almost the yin and yang of advertising, like no money, but you can do whatever you want and all the money in the world and you can do nothing. So that's, exactly. I, I guess it's a very formative experience yes. from a so- professional. We are the Harry Houdini of marketing because we could escape out of anything, get anything done without having to ever do television or print or anything. So, um, yes. That's awesome. So I wanted, I want to talk about, and and not exclusively about Sailor Jerry and Hendrix, but you know, me as a, as a kind of drinker and someone who loves alcohol and from a branding standpoint, like they seem like two sort of very different concepts in a way. So I was wondering if you can give us an idea of the timeline and a bit more, a bit more, yeah, 
in-depth info on on how both of them came about. I think it's my understanding that Sailor Jerry was first. Is that correct? And also, like, yeah, how 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 you really grew that brand in the beginning? Uh, no, they were created literally presented the same day. Oh, on the same day! Wow. Okay. Were, yeah, we presented them both the same day. Um, I think that it's interesting. When we first launched Sailor Jerry, it hit with a magnificent thud. It did nothing. Um, even to the point where Grants was, I think, going to kill it and hand it back to us and just say, this brand's not doing anything. Um, but what happened with Sailor Jerry was interesting. So pre-internet, we, we also had the clothing company, and we would have all these bands like stop by our store, and we would load them up with cases of rum, and they would drive to the next city, and uh, and they would spread the word. That was so it was a very early form of viral marketing or, or word of mouth marketing. Um, and what also happened with Sailor Jerry, which was uh, really good timing, was Diageo was being formed at this time. So when Diageo formed by I guess Shifflin and Somerset and uh, uh, Paddington forming together there was suddenly a bunch of distributors that lost the, the distribution rights for, um, for Captain Morgan. And so suddenly all these distributors were hungry for a replacement and Sailor Jerry happened to be there and ready to go. Um, and what's also interesting about Sailor Jerry is it grew um, out of Rust Belt states. So usually brands grow like, you know, New York City, San Francisco, like the places where the influence is off. But Sailor Jerry grew spontaneously out of, I think Madison, Wisconsin was our first, our first big, uh, big city where, where it exp exploded. Things mm -hmm. don't really explode in Madison, Wisconsin, but where it started getting a foothold. And then it, then it spread through Minnesota, the Dakotas, uh, all the Rust Belt areas. And it, even to this day, Sailor Jerry's uh, off-premise sales, I think were something like, still at like 98% of Sailor Jerry sales are off-premise very different business model than than uh, uh, the rest of Grant's portfolio. So um, that's the story of Sailor Jerry. Uh, do you want to hear more about Hendrix? <laughs> I mean, so I think Joanna is going to yeah. jump in now with a question. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I I just going off of what you just said about Sailor Jerry and how you presented both Sailor Jerry and Hendrix on the same day, yeah. but they clearly had success with different markets um was that your intention when you presented those brands or uh no i would say what's interesting is i don't think there was any intention um <laughs> we presented the ideas i think the ideas were very strong sailor jerry we i mean hendrix we we launched first in the u.s it launched in the u.s before it launched in, in, in europe and uh, again, it felt with, I think it met with mild success in the U.S. Um, but where the brand, where Hendrix took off was in the U.K. And a lot of times for brands to work, you need to find a champion within the organization who really takes it into the ring. So with Sailor Jerry, for instance, when I said it took off out of Madison, Wisconsin, that's because there was a, a sales person at Grants and a distributor in that region that really embraced the brand and took it over and said, yes, that's what happened with Hendrix in the UK. Um, Grant's UK, uh, at the time there was a, um, brand manager named June Hirsch who, uh, who really took Sailor Jerry under her wing in London 
and pioneered a lot of the um, taking our brand world that we created and, and bringing it to life with these, you know, outrageous experiential events. And so the brand started taking over. So by the time it, it almost is like uh, the brand was created in the U.S. with Scottish provenance, but it really made it big in London and then came back to the U.S. I think that's, that's incredible. Sorry, Tim. Go yeah. Ahead. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's incredible to note as well because it definitely feels like within that time, the gin category has really evolved. And, you know, c can you recall what it was like back then and maybe even gin's reputation? Because I, I feel like Hendrix has really played a role in kind of making gin more accessible to people or changing the image where you know, people previously kind of maybe had notions of it, of being kind of like an older spirit or, you know, gin and tonics weren't even that popular back then. Is that, is that something you can remember? Oh yeah. Back then it was just beef eater and, uh, uh, what's, what's the other brand? <laughs> um, the green one. Tanqueray. Tanqueray. Yeah. That, that's basically all that was on the market. Um, and I think Hendrix, it's interesting because obviously the, the, liquid magic of, of Les, Leslie Gracie, the uh, master of still the grants, um, mixed with our, I would say, naivete about what gin should be, um, created something wholly new. I mean, I think that uh, it's also because I think grants wasn't in the gin business, that they were very open to it being something other and different. Um, but when it hit the market, there was nothing else like it. It was totally unique. And can you tell us as well, because I, I know you have a great story about how that the, the, basically the, the idea for that uh, brand was born and a specific trip to Scotland that you took yourself. And, and, and I think that's fascinating and also speaks to kind of the work that you do in launching brands. Uh, yeah. So we got, I was asked to go to Scotland with Sir Charles Gordon Grant the owner of Grants. And um, he wanted me to come see his gin palace. So I'm thinking this is like going to be a palace, right? So we fly to Dufftown, see the Glenfiddich distillery. And then I drove with him in a, in a camper van uh, through Scotland to Girvan, which Girvan is the, uh, you know, an industrial town on the, uh, I guess, I'm not sure where it is from Glasgow. It's, it's on the outskirts of Glasgow. And um, we get there, and it's like the dead of night. I'm sick as a dog, right? And uh, he's kept me up every night eating haggis and all that. And sick as a They're dog. not making I'm... you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I go into the um, – I'm like, okay, so show me this gin palace. And it's a, it's a little garage with these two ancient stills in it. And I'm like, so it's, it's not a palace at all. I guess the gin palace is what they call where they make gin, but these two ancient stills, the Carter and the Bennett's Carter head and the Bennett still are from the 1840s. And I see it and I instantly think of Jules Verne. And this starts a whole stream of consciousness with Jules Verne equals, um, Victorian apothecary, uh, Victoriana. And so that then, um, sends us on a, uh, sort of like, stream of consciousness where we go look for, I, I sent my assistant to go find um, antique 
uh, poison bottles. And um, because we, we knew that it, we wanted it to feel like it came from an apothecary shelf rather than uh, from, from being a spirit, based on the idea that it felt like this sort of Jules Verne story to me. So that's how we create all of our brands. It's kind of just mm -hmm. like inspiration, story, stream of consciousness that somehow all uh, ends up making sense in the end. And now, you know, that Hendrix bottle is just very iconic and, and you yeah. know, really does stand out on the shelf. And I'm sure even more so then than it does now. And I think, I mean, we also create very intuitively. But we call it, you know, it's informed intuition, meaning that um, I, I spend the majority of my day researching arcane information. I'm a total history nerd. And, and all the ideas that we pull from come from, from me reading like, you know, old books and things like that. So I feel that um, every client we work with, it tends to be the ideas come from, we don't look at trends. We don't follow what's going on in the market. We really create things based on um, uh, this notion of, of history and informed intuition. Awesome. I, th I think Katie was going to go, but maybe she... Sorry, I didn't. I was on mute. <laughs> um, I was going to say, uh, just going back to what Tim mentioned earlier about how iconic the actual bottle itself is, especially for Hendrix. Um, yeah. I was wondering, like, in your opinion, how important is design aesthetic for the actual bottles that you're creating? Because you once said that you like to make things ugly on purpose. And I'm kind of yeah. curious like, what that means to you and, and why is that? And do you still feel that way? Oh, totally. I feel like um, we purposely, like I, we, we don't enter award shows and things like that because I feel like it influences the work you do. Uh, because I think you end up creating things for your peers rather than creating something that is authentic to the idea of the product. So again, something like Hendrix, the idea was when I, when I thought of Jules Verne and Victorian Apothecary, um, and this is pre-internet too, so doing research was a little more difficult, but looking up uh, antique, I also spent a lot of time in antique stores, like sort of going through and finding old bottle forms and knowing what their intent and use was and knowing also then learning about, well, how gin, it's also when we created Hendrix, I didn't know how gin was made. So asking Sir Charles, like, well, how do you do it? And he's like, well, there's this basket and botanicals go in there. So it really gives you this idea of, of, uh, of what when you think about it, apothecary and the the origin of spirits were many in many times were therapeutic like for moose and things like that uh, it starts leading you down this again stream of consciousness of like uh, it led us to Victorian uh, poison bottles and and uh, so the the idea of the Hendrix bottle fits the idea of the brand it becomes the epicenter or nucleus of which the rest of the brand. Uh, pours out of. So that's always the key, is the bottle needs to be the epitome of the brand idea. And when I say it's ugly on purpose, it needs to fit the concept, the overall concept of the brand. And a lot of times, to achieve that authenticity, it can't be, it can't be trendy. It can't be of the moment. It needs to be of the period that, it's, that it, it, it emanates out of, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, when you mentioned like brand authenticity and especially, you know, relating to the bottle itself, I'm so curious because 
uh, Sailor Jerry it's, is sourced from the Caribbean, right? But the yeah. bottle itself has the like Hawaiian. <laughs> yeah. So what, like, what's the kind of story behind that? And do you still feel that that <laughs> brand is authentic? It's authentic to itself because the whole thing, it started as a clothing company. So yeah, the whole thing's authentic to itself. Um, I always also like to talk about bands because I always market myself and my agency and my brands like they're bands and because I'm a big music freak. But if you think about it, I always like to bring up the example of Led Zeppelin because Led Zeppelin, heavy metal, their music's more or less Southern blues, but then they start singing about Tolkien and Gollum and dragons. Somehow it all makes sense and it all works together. So it's this weird mashup of, of different influences that create something totally unique. And Sailor Jerry's totally that because Norman Collins was the uh, godfather of American tattoo, tattooed the entire you know uh, Pacific fleet during World War II Hawaii. Um, but then we, on top of that, we layer all this like uh, punk and uh, garage music. And so the whole thing doesn't quite make any sense, but it totally does when we mash it up into something totally unique. So it's authentic to itself and to its intent. And so some of the other work that you do beyond creating brands um, is also, you know, you would describe as kind of resurrecting brands or rebirthing them. Yeah. Can you tell us about some of the work you've done there and, and what that looks like as well? Because you're not starting from a blank canvas in that instance. Uh, probably our greatest example is Narragansett beer. Um, when we sold Sailor Jerry, uh, it's funny, my um, client from Puma, uh, Tony Bertone, said, you you need to meet the, this guy, Mark Hellendron, who's trying to resurrect Narragansett. And so we met, we all met together in Boston. And in the course of a uh, two hour lunch at Legal Seafood, we mapped out the entire brand. Um, and what we, the trick with resurrecting an old brand is you can't make things too authentically old all the time because your average person, like literally when I talk to my wife, about history, I literally see her eyes glaze over and she fades away, right? So if I might be really interested in the book I'm reading, I know I can't talk to her about it strictly about the book. I need to bring another element. So I feel like with Narragansett, for instance, the, the lager can, which is um, feels like it's always been around. It's actually a mashup of, I think, two or three different eras of, sale, of uh, Narragansett uh, classic packaging. So we tend to take things from the past, mix them up in a way that you, 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 it's all authentic, but it's, it's still new at the same time. Um, and I think that we make history uh, digestible for the average person in a way that intrigues them and brings them into it as opposed to scaring them away. So let's talk about um, where you're, you know, some of the other work that you're doing now in terms of, you know, you have another distillery um, project that is kind of really far in some respects from the mainstream. Um, and some of the things that you're doing there, 
might not strike someone as something that's going to like be this incredible hit like a rum brand is or, or a gym brand. Can you, can you tell us about the work that you're doing at, at Tamworth? Yeah. Okay. So Tamworth, is, is it a business or is it a performance art project? I mean, it's profitable. So I think it's a business. Um, in Tamworth, what, <laughs> what we wanted to do was after we sold Sailor Jerry's, I, I wanted to not just be a guy who creates brands and then find a, a distiller or a flavor house to make it for me. I wanted to actually own my own distillery and, and create things, meaningful things from scratch. So Tamworth is actually a, a larger experiment in the sense that the big idea in Tamworth is can a small can a can a distillery revitalize a small rural community? Um, so Tamworth, New Hampshire, is in Carroll County, New Hampshire, which is I think if not the poorest, one of the poorest counties in all of New Hampshire. And Tamworth mm-hmm. Village itself is uh, um, very small, and they've always had a problem keeping young people staying in the town. Um, meaning, like you know, at first chance, people would run away and go live in the city or whatever. So what's interesting is in Tamworth, I think we have 20 employees and they're all from, they're all from the town of Tamworth or adjacent towns. We've also been able to work exclusively with local farmers to supply our grains, botanicals. And the idea that we're doing up there is to, we always say it's a test kitchen for, for our that we use for our bigger clients and projects. So mm-hmm. up there, we're really experimenting with how far we can take things with, um, like we're, we've done things like Deer Slayer, which is a venison infused whiskey. Uh, we've been working with um, creating gins using wild hops and, uh, and, and uh, all, all sorts of interesting ingredients. Um, we, we have a whiskey made of uh, beaver castorium, which is the anal gland. Uh, of the beaver. So we have a, a cordial made of black trumpet mushrooms and, um, mm-hmm. blueberries. What's interesting too, is here at QCM, we have uh, full-time historians who work with us because we've mm-hmm. learned a lot about, um, uh, TTB rules. And there's things called the, something called the grass list. And what's interesting about spirits versus other categories, even beer, is there's very little, uh, there's very few ingredients on the grass list. So our experimentation is limited by what the government says we can and can't put in spirits. So when we have a full-time historian on staff, if we can prove uh, ethnic or, or historical usage of an ingredient, then we can lobby the TTB to allow us to use it as a flavor. Um, mm-hmm. So there's and, and there's all sorts of weird, weird things that we do uh, just just to try to see how far we can push where where the realm of spirits can go. Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely think you know, kind of venison infused whiskey is not the average spirit that you come across on the market. Uh, you said you you do run a profit, so it's it's a business, but. Ultimately, you also mentioned that it's it's kind of like a think tank for your bigger projects. Is that the end goal, or is it is it more just a kind of um, creative outlet? Like, what what do you see as the end goal there? Well, it's interesting because I I don't we're not 
it, it seems weird to say we're not driven by, by profits, because we are. But there's a much bigger component for us, which is it's we're enjoying the ride and the story and the the ideas that we create is is the creativity is why we do it. And it makes money because we enjoy doing it. And it sounds like uh like yeah, I guess we could be bigger. I guess we could make I guess I could build a giant rectifying plant in Tamworth and uh and you know and source the liquid somewhere and really we're having a lot of fun and what i think is amazing is um i really thank the grab family for giving me this opportunity for 28 years of that stability um i think you know when we sold sailor jerry it gave us the financial stability that we can do a project like tamworth and really enjoy where it's taking us and there is a uh a burden to make a profit up there. But there's the greater burden is to to have a fantastic story to tell in the process. That's really the purpose of it. So I gladly work for my corporate clients in Philadelphia to be able to do what I'm doing in New Hampshire. Um, so we're ha I mean, that's, that's what motivates us. Steve, to that end, um, Aaron Goldfarb recently mentioned in an article that Tamworth produces the most gins of anyone on planet Earth. Um, with all of these experiments and all of this creativity, how personally invested or attached are you to these creations? Oh, I'm very invested in the, the, uh, the ideas and stories. Um, and what is so fun for us is to come up with a concept Sometimes they're led by a story I want to tell. Sometimes they're led by a ingredient or a process that our distiller or biochemist will not want to pursue. So the uh, and and we're very um, what's the word? I'm a uh, enlightened despot. So I I I allow other ideas in, but ultimately, yeah, it's going to be what I approve. Um, so yeah, I think we're very invested in, in what we're in what we're working because again, we want to see how far we can take it. I only get frustrated that we can't do more faster. I have, we have far more ideas than we have capacity. Yeah, um, just to follow up to that, then. Do you, I mean I know you're you're motivated by profits, of course, but also by creativity. Do you want is the goal to have any of these ideas catch fire? In Tamworth? Yeah. No, no, oh, no. no. My goal is to be, it's interesting. We purposely set up Tamworth in a control state. We're, uh, it's, you know, I guess counterintuitive, but we're big fans of control states. Um, because I have one buyer, and that one buyer has a local mandate to buy my product. Um, so I want to be the biggest thing in New Hampshire, which I think is the third or fourth biggest buyer of spirits in the world. I'm already the biggest thing in New Hampshire. Okay, so eventually, the other thing that's interesting with this is we're, um, it's, I'm creative, I'm a creative risk taker, but I'm financially risk adverse. So we don't borrow money. We only self-fund. So we, we, to build the entire distillery, we did not borrow a single dollar from the bank. Um, and to take this to the next step, and we're currently scouting more land because we need more barrel houses. 
and we need a place to, uh, you know, build a, 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 a bigger uh, strip still. Um, we, we have scouting land, and then we'll buy that land with cash, and then we'll build with cash. And so it's, I'm looking at this, you know, again, the Grant family is a good teacher. They've been doing it for generations. And I think that what, I, what I'm attracted to by the spirits category is that they take a generation approach to things. That's wonderful. Um, and, and kind of to the Tamworth end and sort of looking forward, Steve. So, you know, you mentioned that you have some of these positions on staff that are not definitely, you know, like historians. I don't know whether most distilleries would have them on staff, maybe some that have kind of stretched back longer. I think maybe some of the bourbon distilleries do because they want to know more about their own brand history rather than maybe ingredients. Um, but I remember, I, you know, having spoken to you before, you mentioned, you know, these TTB guidelines um, and maybe the ultimate goal one day having a distillery in a country with no laws oh, yeah, so yeah, that yeah. there are no limiting factors. Um, not sure whether... That is a possibility, but as a kind of final question, I wanted to ask you, what does the future look like and, and, and what's on the horizon for you and for Tamworth and, and new projects coming up? Ah, well, you know, I, I think it is funny. Like, what if you built a distillery in a country that didn't, that allowed you to use different ingredients? It'd be very interesting. Um, I, I think for the future... I mean, we look at things for so long, like it took 10 years to turn. I, Sailor Jerry was fascinating when we did that because every year my account would say, shut it down, you're, you're losing money. Shut it down, you're losing money. And I'd be like, one more year, one more year. But it's interesting because with Tamworth, there's no, there's no exit strategy. Like we didn't, we don't want to sell it. We just want to keep going with it. Um, I think the future would be, um, uh, I would like to repeat the experiment I've had with Tamworth in other communities. Because the transition of positive agricultural-based jobs and tourism has been a profound impact on this small rural town. Wouldn't it be great if I could do this in other, in other communities? So I notice, Bill Gates, you're now the America's biggest farmland owner, Give me a call, man. We could do something together. Okay? Hi, Steve. This is Kat. Hi. I know that you have written a few books, and yeah. uh, you mentioned, you know, being kind of a bookworm earlier. What's happening with your next book, and uh, why are you writing it? We have uh, two books coming out. Two one books. is a cocktail book for Art in the Age. Mm-hmm. And that one has just been put to bed and looks fantastic. Um, and that's called the uh, Cocktail Workshop. And um, I wrote that one with Adam Arace, who's a writer in Philly, and uh, Lee Noble, who was my star mixologist. And um, so that one's going to based around the Art and the Age brand. And then the second book is called Cultivating, Cultivating Curiosity, and I'm working on that with Aaron Goldfarb. Mm-hmm. And um, who I met when he wrote an article about how to make Spears brands go viral. Wasn't that for Vine Pair? It was a Vine Pair. Yeah. 
I think it, it was, was a Vine Pair original. But you know, it's interesting. Wow. I made I made good use of my time during COVID because when COVID first hit, I said, I'm gonna work on another book. So I wrote a proposal and then I um uh handed it to my agent and she said, Who would you like to work on with this? And I said, I think I'd like to work with Aaron. So when we got a deal with uh that's also gonna be with running press. So and I'm not sure we I uh I do weekly calls with Aaron. I was just uh, just got off the phone with him to talk to you guys. So uh, we're I think we're almost towards the end of our process. On that. Wow, that's he awesome. must have been uh, he must have been a very charming interviewer. Ah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Aaron Goldfarb, for those folks listening who may not be familiar with the name, but Aaron Goldfarb, regular Vine Pair contributor, writer at large. Check out his work; it's fantastic. Um, and yeah, I'm sure I'm looking forward to reading the book myself, knowing, um, knowing Aaron and, and hearing a little bit about how you work, Steve, I'm sure it will be fascinating. Well, so, but the thing that's interesting yeah. is my, like, it's interesting because our creative process, like we're not like a typical ad agency or marketing firm. Like we don't, we approach things in a very organic, artistic way of working and I've always said there's only so many people in the world that will ever hire me because who will like understand me right and my job is to find every single one of them but the book with Aaron is my attempt to explain that to to go through and actually uh, try to articulate with this process it's been very successful what, what it's been well, definitely, you know, from the conversation today sounds really fascinating. So, yeah, looking forward to, to reading more there. Yeah, because like um, when, we, when we get hired by people, we don't really pitch anyone. We just sort of, we, we don't do pitches. We just, you, you give me the gig and then you understand that I'm going to create something for you. And I believe your mantra is say yes to everything. <laughs> Within reason, yes. Within reason. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and, and, and really giving us a kind of glimpse behind the scenes at the creative process of, of these brands that I'm sure so many people have enjoyed and know. And yeah, it's been really fascinating. So thank you so much for your time today. Sure thing. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for arranging it. And thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tim. And nice to uh, chat with you, Steve. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at Vine Bears headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by Vine Bears Station Director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Vine Bears co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg. Vine Pairs art director who designed the sick logo for this program. The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. I'm Vine Pair co-founder Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.